Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Don't know now, but football is back. Korea this week, Germany next, and then the world. We catch up on the big news. Plus, there's retro. Let's all meet up in the year 2000 for Chapter 8 of our Champions League story. Plus, Coxie with some problems with his anchor management in the quiz. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. McCartney there with the band The Beatles could have been and we're underway with a new Totally listener. Thank you so much for joining us. Duncan Alexander's here. Hello, Duncan. Hello, James. Alvaro Romeo. Hola. Hola, guys. How are you? Very well, thank you. And look, it's Julian Laurence. Bonjour, James. Bonjour, everyone. Right. Exciting times this, isn't it? With football imminent. I can't wait for Dusseldorf against Paderborn. Well, yes. Yeah. Have you got any better options? Who, Jules, who have PSG got? <laughs> We've got someone in the Champions League that we will smash and then go to the next run and then do the same and then go to the final and do the same. Um, right. No, okay. but what's interesting, you know, about Germany is that the, the derby between Schalke and Dortmund is supposed to be the next game. It's supposed to be the next match day. However, they're thinking about maybe changing the, the, the way the fixtures, the schedule of the fixtures not to have these games straight in when you come back because they don't really know right. will Schalke fans or Dortmund fans turn up to the stadium and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, let's get a little bit more of an idea about the Bundesliga's big news that they're going to be returning this 15th of May from, of course, our very own German football expert, Raphael Honigstein. You must be ever so excited. Yes, I am excited. I mean, come on. You know, in a way, it's it's a bit sad, really, because you know that football's going to come back, but it's not going to be the real full fat football. It's going to be very much a hollowed out um, skeleton version of of the game. And as much as I want to see it, at the same time, you just kind of have to brace yourself that it's not really going to be football as you know it, Jim. I see. Well, listen, the announcement, which I think caught a lot of people by surprise Wednesday afternoon, but the league is actually meeting today, Thursday. So is this start date of the 15th May definitive? Uh, it will be confirmed uh, today. It was confirmed uh, unofficially, if you will, in a letter to the uh, clubs by the CEO of the Bundesliga, Christian Seifert, on Wednesday evening. Um, I don't think the announcement was, in, in fact, uh, surprising. It had been very much on the cards. The Bundesliga were very careful not to go public with their optimism, but they had sort of received reassurances by the um, most relevant prime ministers of the regional, uh, the federal states, that they would okay this. And Merkel effectively rubber stamped it. I mean, she has very little time for football and probably doesn't really understand what all the fuss is about. Uh, to give you an indication of where it sits in the priorities, um, after nearly three hours, this was the very last thing on the agenda. Um, so she just basically follows in that respect what the uh, the prime ministers of the biggest states decide and they had long sort of made up their mind that they thought football could come back in disguise. 
Excellent. Okay. Presumably we've got 78-minute uh, a match format. Would that be what they're doing? <laughs> also, Rafa, is it too early, do you think? Has it caught some of the clubs out? Is everybody going to be ready for this earlier restart? Well, Bremen and Mainz have actually complained because they had slightly different regulations because of where they're situated. Um, some teams have been training um, together for two weeks. Some have had 10 days. Uh, those two clubs have had a little bit less time and they argued quite strongly that uh, the league should come back one week later. But um, the majority of the clubs, of the 36 clubs in Bundesliga 1 and 2, want this to come back early. I think there are two reasons for this. One is they understand that you know keeping everybody in quarantine um, for two weeks before the game is, is not going to be uh, an easy thing and it's probably probably going to be quite hard for, for players to be away from their families for that long and sort of to be um, protected from, from from everyone else. And perhaps more importantly, I think the longer this takes to actually start and kick off, the more scope there is for someone to get infected, for something to go wrong, as it did with the Salomon Kalu video. So they want to do this as quickly as possible and sort of lay up the games quite thick and fast to see if they can drive this through. All right. And Rafa, just briefly, on the subject of if something does go wrong or somebody does test positive, there does seem to be a bit of confusion about what the measures will be, how long a suspension will be and for whom. Yes, and the confusion is down to the federal system. Um, when somebody tests positive in any walk of life, the local health authority has to make that decision whether everybody else needs to go into quarantine or how to define the people that he had contact with because of the training not having been uh, full training with full contact. Uh, when, when staff and players have tested positively, they were removed individually, put into quarantine, but the rest of the team, the rest of the staff was allowed back in. If this now happens during a game or after a game, then the local health authority have to take a stand. And I guess the Bundesliga hope and pray that it doesn't come to this because the last thing they want to see is whole teams and opposition teams going into quarantine halfway through for two weeks. All right. Fingers crossed then, Rafa. And uh, fingers crossed that you'll join us as well next week for a special preview of the uh, brand new gutted out and hollowed version of football returning in the Bundesliga. It'd be my pleasure, James. Super, there you go, Box Armour, who was asking for an episode with Rafa telling us a little bit more about the Bundesliga sides uh, so that people can pick a team to support. We'll have a bit of that next week, eh? As regards other European leagues, Premier League, still very much in the blue sky thinking phase. Bottom six helpfully suggesting that they play behind closed doors if relegation was scrapped. PFA Chief Gordon Taylor coming back with games that last less than 90 minutes. All valid options. 8th of June is the target for a restart of the Premier League. Jules, as we know, Ligue 1 won't be returning. PSG are champions. Uh, Spain, Alvaro, what's the story there? Well, uh, there is uh, an intention for La Liga to return. Javier Devas has been working really hard on a protocol, uh, but obviously it will be down to the Spanish government to lift the ban on uh, public activities. So as soon as the Spanish government allows it, the clubs will start uh, number one training, uh, number two training collectively, not players separately, and uh, finally playing football. It is expected football to return probably not earlier than mid-June, and this week uh, finally the clubs have started uh, conducting uh, tests for football players. Probably in about a couple of days we will know how many of those players have tested positive. Uh, we know that in Bundesliga 10 players tested positive. That didn't stop the competition from going ahead. And uh, yeah, uh, progresses have been made in La Liga. So it is expected that by 
mid-June, late-June, La Liga will start if everything goes as planned. Mid-June, late-June in Spain. Perfect preparation for a Qatar World Cup. But you're going to have temperatures in the kind of high 40s in Andalusia and that kind of thing. Could be very, very interesting. Excellent. Well, before any of that, the K-League, Korea's top division, will actually be starting a new season this Friday. Tomorrow for us listeners perhaps for you as well. The season was delayed from February 29th when it was meant to get underway. Among the emergency measures in place, labelled water bottles, sensible, and excessive spitting being prohibited. Steve Price from Forbes.com is in Seoul. He says the big surprise is that they've actually waited this long. I think these games are they're behind closed doors and it kind of felt that the K-League has been waiting because they kind of want to have the games with fans in the stadium. And so they probably could have got away with starting it early if they really needed to, if they were in that situation that the Premier League in England's in, where you've got a billion pounds riding on it, then certainly it's been safe enough to do, do that here for a while because the teams have been practicing all throughout the coronavirus. They've been having club friendlies within themselves between like the A team and the B team. So everything here is pretty much ready to go. Life is almost back to normal apart from two things, and mainly that's the schools. Schools are still off and the live sport, which is still going to be behind closed doors for a few weeks at least. I see. Now, a lot of leagues around the world are going to be watching the K-League to see which measures they've adopted, and maybe we can look forward to seeing some of them uh, in, in, other, in other championships. So what measures in particular should we look out for? I should look out for, I think, people on the substitutes bench. They'll be wearing things like masks. All the fourth officials and stuff will have masks on. Uh, Anyone who, if you're playing, of course, you can't play with a mask. That's impossible. But anyone who uh, can get away with it will be wearing one. And they tested all the players. They've set up a program uh, where they tested all the players at the start. And they do basic checks on the day, things like temperature checks to make sure no players have a fever or anything like that and have policies in place in case a player does and then they can still move forward with the competition while keeping everybody safe. I guess the big question, Steve, is what happens if a player does test positive and the league are talking about suspending that team's fixtures as well as their opponents for two weeks. That could snowball pretty quickly, couldn't it? Well, I think uh, at the moment there's so few cases that pretty much nobody's expecting that to happen. And for that to happen, there'll probably be so many cases within the country that people will be probably thinking about should we be playing anyway. Uh, If there are one or two cases and you have to suspend the games for one or two weeks, then that's not really as big a deal as I think everybody's been making it out. Uh, Whenever I've read English media about if that happens, what's the point? I mean, clubs have games suspended because of the bad weather and stuff. So that happens anyway within the season. And if it happens because of a disease, then that's still the same situation. You have two weeks off and then once everybody's back healthy again, you can you can play and they're perfectly safe by doing that, I think. And in the meantime, getting the league back underway is a huge opportunity for the K-League, which started off the year without a, a new domestic broadcasting deal. Yeah, they've really struggled a bit this year to um, get a a deal that they think is what the league is worth. So they've now, um, getting this attention, they've really gone for it and they've got these international deals. But they've also really called on everyone they can to help. So they've 
set of English language commentary and getting um, professional commentator from Australia to do that. So they're really pulling out all the stops to uh, try and take advantage of being the only league or one of the only leagues that's in action and definitely the only league that's making these kind of efforts. Okay, well, for at least a week until the Bundesliga returns, they have the spotlight. Steve, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much for filling us in on the K-League. Yeah, thanks for having me. Steve Price of Forbes.com in South Korea. How about that then? It's going to be a shorter season. The 12 teams in the top tier are going to play each other twice instead of the usual three times, which is an unusual format. I did visit Seoul in November last year, and oh, yeah. uh, they're, a, they're a massive football country. Um, so I'm sure everyone will be very excited that this is coming back. Yeah, well, indeed so, particularly when they hear that Friday night's kickoff for the season is last year's champions, Jumbut Motors, now managed by Jose Marais, Jose Mourinho's former assistant, who are taking on last year's cup winners, Suwon Blue Wings. Incidentally, the team who finished behind Jumbut Motors last year on goal scored alone, it was one of the tightest title races in years, uh, Ulsan Hyundai, uh, they're going to be taking on uh, Sangju Sangmu, who are, yes, the army team, composed entirely of players who are doing the national service, so essentially on loan from other other teams. That's brilliant. So you've got a kind of like floating best-of side in, in the league. It's like the Met Police used to be in the. Uh, although they're now not policemen, their players. But also, isn't Son doing his military service at the moment? Can they can they use him? Well, presumably yes. You know who plays in the K League actually is uh, Mix Discarud. You know Mix Discarud, the uh, the US international mm-hmm. who still is on the books at Manchester City. There Somehow, he's been a Manchester City player like all his life pretty much, but he's never played for them. One of those weird transfer. Not sure what happened there, but yeah, he's okay. in there. Bolton Wanderers and Crystal Palace fans will be uh, keen for me to mention Lee Chung Yong, who is part of that All Sun team who are taking on the Army Boys. Fantastic. Let's get on some tweets before the first round of the quiz. Serdan writes in, says, when you were talking about the end of the season, 94-95, Blackburn winning, you failed to acknowledge that former Hammer Tony Gale was playing for Blackburn in that final match, and he led the entire Blackburn team in a rousing rendition of I'm forever blowing bubbles at the end because, of course, West Ham denying Man United victory meant that Blackburn were winners. Equally, says Serdan, West Ham were motivated against Man United because United had Paul Lintz playing for them. Yeah, who they obviously detested and possibly still do because he had been pictured in a Manchester United shirt before even signing for the club, which went down uh, not very well. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Utsav Srivastava wants to talk about ads with the lads. Perhaps our most cherished running theme. How have you not discussed this one, says Utsav, with reference to the phenomenal 2003 Pepsi advert, Western-themed, which sees Real Madrid players and Man United players face off on a dusty Western street over a can of fizzy pop. It really is genius. Slight hiccup when moody-looking Beckham first speaks. Pepsi. Hmm. Uh, but in all other regards, tremendously authentic. It was actually shot in Almeria, Spain, where all the spaghetti uh, westerns were filmed, uh, and was directed by Tarson Singh, who did uh, the... Do you remember that very, very popular Losing My Religion video for R.E.M.? Do you remember this advert, everybody, the Pepsi advert where there's a shootout? It's brilliant. I completely forgot it. It was really good. 
I thought you were going to say that it was directed by Sergio Leone as well, just to round the circle completely. But uh, I always believe that the goalkeepers are humiliated in these ads uh, because it was an Iker Casillas versus David Beckham. And Beckham scores the goal. Casillas has no chance. Uh, I don't know why goalkeepers accept uh, normally to be part of, the, of these ads. But at the end, the good thing is that they left it open for a second part because Roberto yeah. Carlos came out from the barber and he was going to take a free kick and that was the end of it. Because I think the tagline is leaves you wanting more or something, which actually yeah. suggests that their drink is deeply unsatisfying. I'm not sure that that's what the... But, but anyway, uh, here's Kaz with another favourite ad, the John Barnes LucasAid mm. one. It still makes me want to kick all my rubbish into the bin. After 90 minutes of share hell, you're going to get thirsty. Yeah, this, I would say this is my favourite football advert in the sense that, you know how there's various phrases you remember through life that you probably say out loud maybe ten times a year just because they're hardwired into your brain? From this advert, after 90 minutes of sheer hell, you're going to get thirsty. I literally probably say that once a month out loud for no reason. So that's how, how you know, impressive that advertising was. Julianne, do you have a random phrase that you can't help yourself coming out with? <laughs> No, I don't, but I'm going to look for one now. I w- no, I was going to All say, right. d- does the PTK one uh, for John Smith count or does it have to be one that involves professional football players? I mean, by now we seem to be covering all adverts all the time everywhere. Because but surely originally PT- the concept was that it was adverts that were particularly cherished for you almost as much as football matches because you grew up with them and there was something exciting about the composition of the, uh, of the teams or the, the, the little narrative twist or whatever. I think the PTK one is amazing to have that, you know, when he kicks the ball and he was doing keep up his. But when we did this on the show and I mentioned the cage one, that was my favorite, you ridiculed it by yeah. saying, oh, but my one is better because the, the director was. Who yeah. was the Inaritu. director of yours? Garichi? No, no, no. Is it Inaritu? Yes. But actually, you know who directed the, uh, the Terry cage Gilliam. one? Terry yes, we had, some, yeah. we had one of the listeners tweeting, so just have that. Yeah. No, no, George, you've had a plebiscite on your yes, side. Yes, I Loads do, actually. Loads of the cage. Yeah. But most popular among listeners, don't know if this is your experience, listener, uh, was uh, the Brazil at the airport Nike ahead of uh, 1998 one. That's, that's probably the favourite. If it was an advert that uh, created a narrative of uh, the way a player played, uh, I'm looking at Ronaldinho's 2002 in Paris, where he plays with uh, some sort of a draw, and, and some freestylers. And uh, that was in 2002. And I believe that uh, no advert had uh, explored the ground of freestyling. And uh, they created that narrative about Ronaldinho that uh, afterwards translated on the pitch as well. I think that that was a kind of uh, iconic too. Very nice, Alvaro. Well, let's take a quick break now from the adverts in a slight inversion of the usual practice uh, because it's time for the quiz as we find the final semi-finalist. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Listen, at the end of Totally is our quest to find the number one Totally Football pundit. So far, it's been brutal. Rafa out, Nevin out, Julian out, Sasha out. I mean, I could go on. Just this weekend, Horndog out, which means we've got one more quarterfinal to go and another big name is about to tumble as we meet our contestants. Time to play the game! Up first, 
He's made it to the quarterfinals despite a quiz debut that could only be described as Jonathan Woodgate-esque. Oh boy, this is bad. My goodness. You know he's made of sterner stuff than that, so don't you dare be sour. It is Carl Cerebral Assassin Anchor. Carl, welcome back to the Intertotally. It's great to be back. Great. Some difficulties there in the first round, but as they say, don't look back in anchor, eh? <laughs> look, it was a strong first half. Yeah, one point out of five in the, the general knowledge is something you'll look to better today. I imagine, particularly given who you're up against. And his opponent, the man who some say already has his name etched onto this trophy. When it comes to footballing knowledge, he knows his apples and he knows your apples too. Oh, speaking of apples, here he is, Michael Cox. Glad he went with apples there, Michael. Yeah, that's not the usual... uh... Yeah, comparison that gets made on Twitter. So I'm happy with apples this time around, yes. Okay. So much expectation riding on your shoulders. A lot of pressure with that, I imagine. Yeah, a little bit. And I must say, Carl's uh, entry music was quite intimidating as well. I feel like I'm really up for, you know, in for a battle today. Well, I'm sure you are. You both got six out of ten in the first round. Carl, as we mentioned, one or two issues with the general knowledge, which means specialist subject could be absolutely crucial. What have you both gone for, Carl? Uh, well, there was some furore over the fact I chose half a season of Southampton, which I disagree with. So I've gone for the uh, 2018 World Cup. Okay, sounds good. Michael, how about you? Yeah, I've gone for a tournament as well. I've gone for uh, Euro 2004. Very good. Carl, you're up first answering questions on the World Cup 2018. Question one. When Belgium came back from 2-0 down against Japan in the round of 16, who scored the late winning goal for them? I want to say Nasa Chadley. I assume that's what you're saying. Yep, Nasa Chadley is my answer. Is correct. Question two. Harry Kane won the golden boot. But who won the silver boot at World Cup 2018? Oh, uh, Kane got six goals. Uh, I want to say Romelu Lukaku with four goals? It was Antoine Griezmann who finished ahead of four others because he got more assists. Oh. Harsh. But fair. Question three. Which player in England's squad had just been relegated from the Premier League when he was picked? Huh. Uh, So that's the end of the 2017-18 season. It would be Jordan Pickford, surely? It was Jack Butland who'd just gone down with Stoke. Question four. Which team were knocked out of the last 16 stage for the seventh World Cup in a row? Uh, Oh, this is a curse. It's the curse of 16. It's Mexico. It is. And question five. What was unusual about the penalty that Antoine Griezmann scored in the final against Croatia? It was a VAR-assisted penalty? That is correct, Carl. Well rescued. (sighs) At the end of your specialist round, you have a respectable three out of five. Okay, Not bad. (laughs) Let's see if Michael Cox can better that, answering questions on Euro 2004, Michael, question one. Wayne Rooney became the youngest ever scorer in the European Championships when he found the net against Switzerland. But who broke his record just four days later? Uh, it was a Swiss player called Von Lathen. Von Lathen. Von Lathen is correct. Johan Von Lathen. 
Question two. Who scored a late winner for Italy in the group stage and thought he'd put them through, only to discover that Sweden and Denmark had drawn 2-2, a scoreline that ensured both those nations qualified? I think, and I'm only saying this because I can remember him kicking a water bottle in frustration and then falling over, which was very funny. I think it was Antonio Cassano. It was. Question three. Which two England players missed in the penalty shootout defeat to Portugal? Uh, One was... Vassell, who missed the decisive one, and I believe the other one was David Beckham. That's correct. All right, you're level now with Carl. Question four. Which is the missing team from this list of Greece's opponents in the tournament? Portugal, twice. France, Russia, the Czech Republic, and one other nation. Who is it? So be in the group stage, and it would be Spain. Correct. And question five, for a perfect first round score, what was manager Otto Rehagel the first to do when Greece won the tournament? Uh, I can only assume it's uh, to win it with uh, a country which isn't his own. That is correct. He was the first foreign manager to win the European Championships. Good Lord, five out of five, Michael. Oh, that used to be me. Yeah. No, it was, to be fair, I thought Cole's questions were very tough. I certainly wouldn't have got right the ones that he got wrong. Just a two-point lead then, and a mighty, mighty performance ahead if Carl Anker is to challenge for that last semi-final place. We'll be back with you guys later on for that. How about that then? Michael with a five out of five in the specialist subject. Good to see both players go for wide-ranging specialist subjects as well, given recent controversies. thought the, the Butland question was quite tricky in Carl's one, because you never know whether Jack Butland's actually injured or available. So, Alvaro, you're the only person present who's actually still in this tournament. I am. How on earth did you go on... that far? How d- what happened? Well, no, it, it happened that the, Dan, Duncan Alexander lost in the first round. Hello, Duncan. Hi, um, I, mean, I, I, because... I don't know how, but I won the second round as well. Uh, Pat Nevin basically melted off in the general knowledge questions. And he helped me a lot. Duncan, did you lose? You lost to Alvaro? Did, yeah. Did you not hear about how that? How come you're allowed um, on this podcast ever again? How do you go? This is your job, quizzes and stuff. <laughs> you host the best yeah, quiz Yeah, I write ever. a lot of quizzes. I write a lot of quizzes, yeah. Right. But you don't know the answer. Poacher Town Gamekeeper. But, you know, mm. I think if Alvaro wins, it, it puts my defeat in a much different context. So That's true. <laughs> Jules, anyway, you should be proud to have an international in the semi-finals. Yeah, Unrepresentative. Sorry. You're right. That no, should no, be no, the we'll, approach. We'll see anyway. We'll see anyway if Carl Lanker can come back from that two-point deficit in the general knowledge, which Michael wasn't all that... Uh, 100% on when last he competed. But that'll be later on. Right now, it's time to go retro with Chapter 8 of our Champions League story. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Extra large laundry baskets? Special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegambleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Champions League 1999-2000. A new millennium 
and from the visionaries at UEFA HQ in Neon, a new format. Some felt they never should have left the knockout format for a group stage, but UEFA had an answer. Two group stages. <laughs> <laughs> But 99-2000 was more than just a bloated, unwieldy format. It was also the first year of Spanish dominance, with three of the four semi-finalists and both finalists. It was Valencia reaching the first of back-to-back finals with the one manager you don't want to go to a final with against Real Madrid. But it was also Redondo doing Man United, fresh new faces like Chelsea and Lazio, and batty goal at Wembley. 99-2000, Jules, you enjoyed this look back. I loved it, absolutely. I had forgotten uh, how strong the Lazio team was, for example, how good the Fiorentina team was as well. The, the Spaniards were, were very dominant, but some of those games were incredible. There's, there's a lot of twists, uh, as we will see uh, when we go through the season. Uh, almost every stage with big clubs who could have gone out and then went fine. A compet- there's, there's, there's so much into it. Some of the goals, I mean, Bresson's goal was incredible for Fiorentina. Mm-hmm. There was yeah, so much to, to, that I had forgotten about and it was great to, um, to look into it again. Right, that Bresson goal against... Uh... Barcelona, Alvar, absolutely astonishing overhead kick from from sort of Ibra-esque distance. Yes, absolutely. And um, it was one of those goals that uh, that you don't forget. And one of these teams that you don't forget either, because Fiorentina had uh, Batistuta probably at his prime. Also a player that, uh, like Balbo, that uh, he was uh, the perfect sidekick for, mm. for Batistuta as well. And they did uh, all rightish in the Champions League, considering that they didn't have a lot of experience in the competition. The goal I remember from that season was Batistuta's incredible strike from a pretty extreme angle against uh, Arsenal at Wembley in the first group stage and he also struck against United Duncan yeah home and away the in Florence Roy Keane made a untypical terrible back pass which he intercepted and lashed home Um, and then at Old Trafford He hits it so hard from about 35 yards. The ball just... And this is the era when balls didn't really move that much. They were a bit heavier, but it moves all over the place and just you know, flies into the net. Um, you know, he really was incredible in this season, yet, you know, rarely did anything in the competition afterwards. You know, he played 11 games for Roma in 0102 and, and didn't score. So this right. really was the kind of one, the one flowering season of Batistuta in the Champions League. Well, Batistuta's legs, of course, were becoming increasingly a problem, so much so that he kind of quipped afterwards that he wanted to have them amputated. They were giving him so much pain. And he managed to to drive Roma to the title after making the switch following this particular season. But I think it's fair to say, particularly in Europe, he wasn't by any means as effective. But as you say, Alvar, incredible squad they had in terms of goal scoring. Abel Balbo there, Pedro Miatovic was with them as well. Also, Enrico Chiesa with a guy named Ricosta backing them all up. Yes, they were all very good players. Unfortunately for Miljatovic, his prime came from 94 until 99 and probably he didn't show up all his talent at Fiorentina. Also, we have to remember that his son, Luka, I believe, Luka Miljatovic, was unfortunately in the hospital at that time and Miljatovic couldn't actually focus in his footballing career because he had to be with his son all the time. So his time in Italy wasn't great. But 
just a word about Batistuta. I mean, he was scoring pretty much like uh, 0.8 goals, 0.7 per game uh, in a time when uh, defenses were more dominant than attacks. Uh, football was different in the early 2000s and Italian football was the epitome of that. And he managed to be the most consistent scorer in there. Again, if you want a bit more background on Batty, there is a Golazzo for that. Let's talk about the English sides. Man United were the European champions, but attempts by the Premier League's teams to retain the trophy proved unsuccessful this year. Arsenal, who were drawn in Fiorentina's group, finishing third, dropping into the UEFA Cup, where they would make it through to the final, but would get done by Galatasaray on penalties. The UEFA Cup that year marked by violence, and in particular the fatal stabbings of two Leeds United fans, Kevin Spate and Christopher Loftus, in Istanbul. Going further in the Champions League were Man United and also Chelsea. Plucky Chelsea, Duncan. Plucky in the sense that this was the pre-Abramovich era. I mean, they still had you know players like Deschamps and Zola, so they they weren't sort of you know run of the mill. But yeah, they um, they adapted really well. Um, got through both group stages. I think possibly their key player this season was Torre Andre Flo, who's not a name that people think of much anymore, but he scored eight goals in this season um, in his only ever season in the Champions League. Only one player has played one season in the Champions League and scored more goals than that, and that is his countryman Erling Haaland, who you would imagine is going to go on and play more seasons in the Champions League. Um, third in that list, for anyone who wants the top three, is Lee Bowyer with six in his one season. Wow. Um, but yeah, Flo popped up with, with Chris crucial goals time and again um, and yeah Chelsea got through their, their two groups and set up uh, you know a fairly or very memorable um, course final against Barcelona uh, in which right. the first leg at Stamford Bridge was an absolute classic um, you know obviously on Monday's pod you talked about the internationalism of the Premier League and how it was kind of you know growing in reputation in the in the mid-90s I think this this game the start of the new century was definitely the Premier League first kind of flexing some of its, you know, obviously Man United had won, but this was another team, you know, it was kind of Chelsea coming along and yeah, they they played really well. Gianfranco Zola with a glorious free kick as Chelsea took a 3-0 lead against Barca in that first leg before Figo pulled a crucial goal back. Of course, the second leg didn't go quite so well at the Nou Camp for the Blues. Al sin que gol del Barça en una nit mágica en una nit de remontada Barça sin Chelsea un I remember um, that uh, Chelsea had a player like Dennis Wise and uh, he seemed to be a little bit uh, out of context now if you look at the way he played and the challenges he was doing uh, at Camp Nou in the second leg. Uh, he did a couple of really, really nasty tackles and he managed to get away with it and I believe that uh, he was probably the one of the, the last players that uh, remained from the old times in that Chelsea team because Gianfranco Zola, uh, Zola sorry, was uh, probably one of those uh, contemporary players who was short, but uh, he was uh, relying on technique and the managers didn't mind about it. Jules, the, the second leg had a pretty emphatic scoreline, but the outcome was anything, anything but a foregone conclusion. Yeah, you're right. And Chelsea, who obviously had the 3-1 lead from the first leg, defended really well. And it's only in the 83rd minute that Dani Garcia, the, the, the young striker for Barcelona at the time, would come on, score to make it 3-1, so to, to take the game into, into extra time. I think after extra time, the Chelsea players' legs had gone and, and it was easier for, for Barcelona and they scored two more goals. Uh, but seven minutes more and they would have gone through to the semi-final for their first ever, as we said, appearance in the Champions League was 
pretty impressive. And I think just quickly on the, uh, th that's when Deschamps arrived and Viali was, was obviously the manager uh, at the time. And the, the, the Deschamps, the Sai partnership was reunited. They were reunited together. If you remember, they were together in the academy in Nantes and the whole friendship that lasted forever and still, still on now was really happened and they bonded when, when the Sai lost his brother uh, in a car accident when, when Marcel was really young and so was his brother who was a very promising talented football player as well and, and Deschamps being roommate with the Sai that time they got so close almost like they were a brother and Deschamps very much replaced the Sai's real brother by being together and I think they always wanted to play again together after the year in Marseille and that time at Chelsea was very much no it was not the greatest Deschamps the greatest Deschamps even the Sai but for them to be together again at club level was very important Wow. Were rooms assigned at Nantes on alphabetical basis, do you think? <laughs> no, that's a good question. I don't think they were, but they were very similar in terms of personalities then as a 15-year-old. Right. Uh, and, and it just worked out well and as well that the, the two names are very close to. That's lovely because you often hear about there's no real friendships in football. I didn't know those two were, were, were besties. Yeah, they were, yeah. Just on Barcelona's attack, they scored... I mean, obviously, there were more games this season. This is the only time in, in Champions League history we've seen uh, players, outfield players play more than 1,500 minutes just purely because there was so many opportunities to. But Barcelona scored 45 goals, which is more than any other team have in, in Champions League history. That's uh, nine more than Burnley did when they came seventh in the Premier League in 2017-18. Um, so it, it felt kind of inevitable that you know that they would score in every game, which they pretty much did. But their defence was was a bit ropey. I'm sure Alvaro will will know more than me on that. But I think possibly you could argue that Chelsea were a little bit defensive in that second leg. You know they had a midfield that day, starting midfield of Dennis Wise, Deschamps, Jody Morris, and Di Matteo. So not that much creativity in there. Yeah, following up on that, I mean Barcelona had uh, Frank de Boer injured for a good part of that season, and he was probably the best defender they had, and then. Um, for that game, for example, against Chelsea, uh, the guy who played left-back was Senden, who was obviously a left-winger. So that tells you a little bit of how prompted Barcelona was to overcome the deficit. But number two, that Luis Van Gaal was uh, no scared of playing with uh, an attacking system. And in fact, uh, Barcelona at that time uh, was playing with uh, two attacking midfielders like Cocu and Luis Enrique, who were capable of scoring more than 10 goals per season. That was adding up to the lot. And then they had Patrick Kluivert up front, who was a good striker, surrounded by Rivaldo, the Ballon d'Or of 1999, and who was going to be the Ballon d'Or in 2000, Luis Figo. So both players, Rivaldo and Figo, picking for Barcelona at the same time was something that Barcelona should have uh, profited more. And it's a real shame for them that they didn't win the Champions League, having those uh, quality players in the squad. Well, semi-finalist Barcelona that season, but not finalist. Before we get on to the two teams who were, what else? stands out for you. I must admit, you mentioned Lazio, Jules, and uh, th they actually were victorious, of course, against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, a 2-1 win for Sven-Juran Eriksson's Lazio at the time. One of their goals coming classic fashion from Sinisa Mihailovic, again from a pretty ridiculous angle. Mihailovic, area follatissima, prova il tiro! proprio lui, Mihailovic! Worth just having a quick look back, as this guy's famous for a lot of things, currently battling against leukaemia. But numbers-wise, at least, has there ever been a better player on free kicks than Mihalovic? I think it's a, it's a great debate. I think Juninho uh, Panambucano, when he was at Lyon, was probably the closest that it will ever be to Sinisa Mihailovic. I mean, Messi 
Messi not being included. And again, it was a different style of, of taking free kicks. But I think Mihalovic and, and Juninho were certainly very close on how they hit the ball and, and, and how they went through the ball compared to, to someone like Messi or even someone like, I don't know, Pjanic or Platini who were more with the inside curling the ball and stuff like that. Mihailovic and Juninho, Mihailovic especially, was, was pure brutality in many respects. And that goal he scored from a very tight angle. Paolo Dybala scored a very similar one this mm. season in the Champions League with Juventus against Atletico Madrid. The thing about Mihailovic, beyond technique and that, just in terms of numbers, I don't know who can compare. He was certainly the number one guy in Italy, scored more than 70 free kick goals in his career. He had better figures in Serie A than Maradona or, or Zola. Uh, he also hit the woodwork apparently 40 times with his set pieces and not once did it deflect in. That's impressive. I think Juninho is 56 maybe, so Mihailovic clearly has, uh, has scored more as well. Anything else, Jules, from the 99-2000 season before we get on to the, the lads in the final? Well, if we focus on the group stages and especially the first, the first part of them, uh, Rangers had a very good campaign that season to the point that before the last game in that group stage away in Munich against Bayern, a Bayern team that had been so far very underwhelming, they were second ahead, one point ahead of Bayern Munich. So a draw in Munich would have been enough for Rangers to actually qualify and go to the second group stage. They lost 1-0 uh, and considered a goal in the second half, but they were very close of knocking out Bayern Munich uh, from the Champions League. And then Bayern obviously went on to go into the semi-final. But it was a very good campaign, uh, those first six games for Rangers. Bayern, who were, of course, the runners-up from the previous Champions League campaign. France, meanwhile, Marseille and Bordeaux were the two representatives. But Jules, perhaps the most crucial contribution from French football was the venue for the final. <laughs> like when Premier League used to be excited about having the referee. Yeah, it's good. Although, although Marseille and Bordeaux being there, there was a lot of controversy because in 1999, Bordeaux won the title uh, and Marseille were second. And it was all down to the last game of the season. And guess where Bordeaux were playing on that last game? They were playing in Paris against PSG. And I think now we can all reveal that PSG let Bordeaux win to make sure that Marseille didn't win the title that season. And it's a, it's a game that Bordeaux won 3-2 and scored the third goal in the dying seconds of the game once PSG let them, let them score to win 3-2 in Paris and be crowned champion ahead of Marseille. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Getting a road named after you in your hometown, special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbgambleware.org. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Que tous ceux qui sont dans la vibe, que toutes celles qui sont dans la vibe, que ceux qui sont assis se lèvent. Allez maintenant on y va. Stade de France, the venue for the final on the 24th of May 2000. Streets filled with the sound of Yannick Cisorella, <laughs> which was number one in France at the time. It's a song that Yannick, who is a young rapper, adapted from Claude François, one of the most famous, if not the most famous, French singer of all time. And Claude François, which his song was called Cette année-là, uh, was already adapted to December 1963. Oh, what a nice. By the four seasons. Fab. Anyway, let's talk about the two teams in the final. Real Madrid, of course, are old friends. But tournament new boys, their opposition, Valencia. 
Alvaro. Remarkable two seasons this at the Mestalla under Argentine manager Hector Cooper, reaching the Champions League final in both of them. I cannot say I didn't see that Valencia coming because uh, the season before they had been spectacular, winning the Spanish Cup and uh, kicking out Barcelona and Real Madrid and Atletico de Madrid in impressive fashion. But they had a new manager, Ranieri left, and they signed Hector Cooper. Well, a manager who is famous now for coming uh, second in every tournament, even though he has won three titles as a manager. A very good manager, actually. And that Valencia had a, a very good mix of experience at the back with uh, Amedeo Carboni, uh, who is 55 years old now, so that tells you how old he was at the time. Um, they had Jukic as well, they had Anglomas, but as I can remember. And then in the midfield, they had a really nice uh, technical uh, young uh, a structure in there with Gerard, Mendieta, Farinos, and then a very quick striker like Piojo Lopez. So they were a very good team and they finished La Liga season that year, uh, unbeaten in the last uh, six or seven games. So coming into the final, since Real Madrid uh, had had a really poor league season with the change of manager from John Tosak to Vicente del Bosque, coming into the final, Valencia seemed to be the favorite, which uh, seems to be now a little bit strange considering the final score of that final. But uh, that yeah. Valencia team ended up being one of those runners-up that fortunately, domestically, they managed to get some titles because they won La Liga in 2002, in 2004, and that uh, somehow make up for the European disappointments. Right, they won the, the title once Hector Cooper had, of course, gone to, to Inter. It, it is extraordinary, his record. He had uh, been working at uh, Mallorca. He got to the Copa del Rey final, lost that, but by being in the final, got them into the Cup Winners' Cup where he gets to the final, which they lost to Lazio. But no matter, he then has the two seasons at Valencia where he gets them into the Champions League finals both times, loses both. He then goes to Italy, where he takes Inter to this final day showdown with Lazio, where he blows that in the most spectacular collapse or infamous collapse in that club's storied history. Just uh, remarkable. But equally, the players that came through Valencia. I mean, more recently, the likes of David Silva and Isco. But at the time, Maracas Flute uh, asking, how is it that that Valencia uh, team had such a talented squad in 1999-2001? They seem to have had a relatively mediocre or inconsistent mid-90s. What was the story? Well, I think that they did a very good recruitment. And uh, then they had uh, some really good, talented uh, players from the academy. Uh, Farinos being one of them. He ended up playing for Inter Milan. Mendieta was probably the biggest star in there. Uh, a player who came from the academy, even though Mendieta was born in the Basque country. And uh, probably... Gaisca Mendieta was one of the best midfielders of his time. Uh, let's not forget that uh, he ended up being the UEFA's best midfielder in 2000 and in 2001, uh, ahead of Zinedine Zidane, for example. I'm not saying that Mendieta was better than Zidane, no way. But at the same time, he had really good seasons. So they did a very clever recruitment. They went for the right manager pretty much all all the times, uh, with uh, Ranieri, with Hector Cooper, Rafa Benitez afterwards. So I think that uh, something very good happened there. Uh, it was a conjunction of uh, a really good work done by the players and the, the sporting direction as well. Well, they got to the final the hard way, drawn in a group of death not once but twice. They had Rangers, PSV and previous season's runners-up Bayern Munich in the first group. Then in the second group, Bordeaux, Fiorentina and the reigning champions, Man United. And once they'd made it through those 12 matches, they had a quarter-final with Lazio, the team that had beaten Coupes Mallorca in that Cup Winners' Cup final, uh, where the Argentine got his revenge with a stunning 5-3 aggregate victory. Centro de Kili González con mucha intención, Gerard, y gol, gol de Gerard, despejó Galota, 
El balón para Gerard que acaba de conseguir el 4-1. Valencia 4, Lazio 1. Uf. They then put Barcelona out. Yeah, and one of the stars in the, all those games was a player who unfortunately didn't reach what was expected from him, but it was Gerard López Segú. He was supposed to be the next great midfielder, the next Guardiola. Everybody expected him to, to be really good, and in the youth ranks, everybody talked about him. And uh, I would say that his peak arrived when he was 21 years old, and he didn't make it any better than that. But uh, in that quarterfinals against Lazio, he definitely killed uh, the team from, from Roma. And then in the games against Barcelona, he was so good that Barcelona signed him that summer. Basically, Barcelona used the money they got from Figo to sign a, a player like uh, Gerard, for example, because he was like uh, looking like the next uh, great midfielder in Europe. And what happened, Alvaro? I think that Gerard, the problem with Gerard was that uh, he arrived in Barcelona when uh, Barcelona didn't know what style to implement in the team. Uh, he had many managers, probably changing from Van Gaal to Radomir Antic to Serra Ferrer to Frank Rijker didn't help his development. And he ended up just uh, not uh, being the player everybody expected. Maybe because they wanted to make of him like a, a holding midfielder. And he was actually really good in the box-to-box system. But the Barcelona system at the time was uh, trying to contain that box-to-box uh, initiative ability. And uh, they tried to make a very positional player out of him. And he wasn't a good positional player. The crazy thing as well about Valencia is in the second group stage, Fiorentina almost could have knocked them out. In the last game, Valencia drew nil-nil with, with Manchester United and Fiorentina are 3-1 up against Bordeaux. And at that time, the two teams are level. One more goal or maybe two more goals for Fiorentina who were walking all over Bordeaux. But they concede two late goals from Bordeaux to draw 3-3 and then they're two points short behind Valencia in that table to qualify for the quarterfinals. So again, another twist, a bit like Rangers and Bayern Munich that could have seen Valencia being knocked out and Fiorentina progressing. So this system of having two group stages, which I think most people look back on as a as a whopping mistake by UEFA, it actually produced, this season at least, some really, really dramatic finales. Yeah, I think the thing with the, the two group stages was the main problem with it for me was that it started before Christmas. You had the first two games before Christmas and then a massive, you know, two, three-month pause before it picked up again. And I felt the kind of... The flow like this season, huh? <laughs> yeah, the flow of the Champions League felt a bit stunted. But um, yeah, I mean, in terms of kind of action, um, the, you can't really, you know, can't argue against it for this season at least. Well, Valencia had made it through to the final, scoring tons of goals, and there they were to face Real Madrid. Bailamos, number one in Spain that season with Enrique Iglesias, whose dad, of course, used to play for Real Madrid. Hey, Julio, yes, he was a goalkeeper. He was for Real Madrid until he got an accident and then he switched to singing. Well, yeah, so he's in the hospital bed and a nurse gave him a guitar and that's when he learned to play and discover his musical talent. And he became the most commercially successful continental European singer in the world. It says in my notes. But yeah, Julio Iglesias was huge, and so was Enrique. Woof. Real Madrid weren't number one in Spain that year, though were they, Alvaro? They'd started the season under John Toshak. As you mentioned, he got ditched for Vicente del Bosque, future Spain manager, future intertotally quiz question. They had sailed through the first group, made it into the second. Things got particularly interesting when they met up with Man United in the quarters. It did, and uh, probably that game 
made one of the most iconic uh, dribbles in the Champions League history, that one of Redondo over Berg, I believe, um, which uh, gets remembered any time there is any excuse for it in Spanish media. It was uh, on the left wing, Real Madrid was attacking. Fernando Redondo was no way the kind of player who would do these things. Uh, but however, he had this uh, lapse of inspiration and uh, he managed to backheel and nutmeg Berg. Uh, then he got into the box and he found Raúl with a very clever pass and Raúl just had to tap in to score one decisive goal for Real Madrid. That game also notable. Obviously, Keane and Scholes have both been suspended for the final the previous season and it felt during the season that they were trying to make up for that. Keane in particular had signed this big new contract with United. Um, but then he goes and scores an own goal to open the scoring for, for Madrid at Old Trafford. And... Um, if you look at it, Skulls absolutely clears out McManaman with a dreadful tackle, but the ball then then goes wide, crossed in, Keane slides in, and uh, it led to that chant, you know, popular amongst opposition fans in England for a bit, for 50,000 quid, he'll score for Real Madrid, which is kind of quite haunting now, because that's basically the salary of like a reserve left-back now, it sounds, you know, but the, at the time, this, for 50,000 quid, it's like, whoa, what's he doing there? Kind of strange as well that obviously people remember the United-Real Madrid game in 2003 when Beckham came on as a sub, scored late, and Ronaldo got the hat-trick. Similar kind of vibe in this one, you know, Madrid take the lead. United kind of fight back, but it's all too little, too late. And um, this reportedly is obviously the game that Ferguson decides that, you know, they're kind of... Uh, gung ho approach to European football isn't the uh, the way forward, and he he tries to kind of remodel the side after this. Yeah, it's worth remarking that Real Madrid, despite having won the Champions League in 1998, they still didn't have this aura uh, around them of a winning team. That season, for example, the let Deportivo La Coruña win the title of them. Barcelona uh, came second in that league uh, and Real Madrid, I believe, that didn't even qualify for Champions League. So that game in Old Trafford was a big statement and Fernando Redondo was uh, probably the best uh, player of that Real Madrid in that game. And uh, it's a real shame that we have missed a player like Fernando Redondo in the international scenario because uh, he got the problem with Daniel Pasarela, the Argentinian manager. Basically, Pasarela didn't want players who had uh, hairstyles like Redondos or didn't want players who were wearing earrings. And Fernando Redondo refused to change his style. Mm. Because Batistuta had to cut his hair to get into the yeah because the, uh, he didn't, basically he said that uh, that shouldn't be important and he didn't play for Argentina for six or seven years for that reason so we miss Fernando Redondo in World Cups for that but that moment against Henningberg at Old Trafford it's not just the skill that backheel flick through Berg's legs but the utter bewilderment of Berg as he tries to process what's just happened and why the ball is completely six yards but where it shouldn't be the best one is that Berg thinks that the ball is going to come out uh, for a goal kick. So he almost stops running once he's been humiliated by the nutmeg and the backheel flick. And then when he realized that Redondo is actually quick enough to get the ball before it comes out on the, you know, near the, near the line, he's, he's try, he tries to come back and he's far too late and then Redondo picks the pass for Rome. Real Madrid made it past by Munich with probably the most significant contribution of Nicolas Anelka's time at the Bernabeu, which you'll be surprised to hear was slightly controversial, eh, Alvaro? Yes, uh, Anelka was a proper character in Spanish football. I mean, I think like he just got to Madrid too young and uh, uh, he was at the time the most expensive signing in uh, world football, 33 million euro. And 
he never adapted to Real Madrid or to that uh, locker room. Uh, there is an anecdote that Vicente del Bosque tells that basically Anelka, after scoring his first goal uh, with Real Madrid, he complained in the locker room that nobody celebrated with him, that they weren't happy about him scoring. So that was a little bit the spirit of uh, Anelka and Real Madrid that year. Uh, he was also suspended uh, and he didn't get his, his salary for a number of days because he uh, didn't... Uh, turn up to few training sessions as well. So that was Anelka in March 2000. But from that point onwards, uh, Vicente del Bosque, who is a man that understands that harmony is the first thing, and uh, he's very pragmatic when it comes to uh, managing to bounce back players that uh, seems to be irretrievable, uh, he managed to get the better of Anelka, at least for a couple of months. And that went uh, in the favor of Real Madrid because Anelka ended up scoring very important goals in that Champions League campaign. Can I say the truth now about the, uh, the, the, the Anelka and Real Madrid dressing room story? Because obviously Alvaro is, is biased for the, for the Spaniards, which I can really understand. So I'm going to be biased with the French, having spoken to Nicola about it many times. First day he arrived um, at the training grounds. There's no locker for him. Uh, he has to wait until everybody sat down and sat in the corner. There's no locker for him. None of the Spanish players said hello to him. The only ones who said hello were Jeremy, uh, Christian Carambe, obviously, that he knew from, the, from France and, and the national team then. But Jeremy and, and Samuel Leto were the other two that spoke French. But none of the Spaniards pretty much never spoke to him. And, and he had a feeling from the beginning that he was not welcome there. And Eto and Jeremy said to him, listen, we have to tell you, you're not going to be happy, but before you arrived here, all the players were talking together and saying like, they don't understand why the club signed you. We already have Morentes. We have Raul, obviously. Uh, and, and they didn't want you here. The players don't want you here. And Anelka, who, like Alvaro said, was very young and very stubborn at the time and through, through his whole career anyway, said, OK, if, if, if it's going to be like this, then I can, I can also cause trouble here. And I think from, from day one, really, it was just not going anywhere. And I, I'm, I'm not surprised that despite all his talent and despite those two goals in the semi-final against Bayern, who really... Save Real Madrid because in the second group stage, Bayern Munich won 8-3 over the two games against Real Madrid. They battered them, the home and away battered them. And no one really thought that Real Madrid could actually beat Bayern Munich in those semi-finals. And Anelka's two goals made a big difference. But he was, from day one, he said he didn't want to be there in the first place. He didn't want to leave Arsenal and certainly not to go to Real Madrid and left after that season to go back to Paris. Uh, but he really never felt like he was welcome and wanted there. Well, one, one thing I really, I really admire about uh, Anelka is that uh, he did the things his own way from a very early age. Uh, he had the personality. I think that uh, he just couldn't cope with everything that uh, playing for Real Madrid involved at the time. What I said about Vicente del Bosque is true. Vicente del Bosque uh, said that Anelka in the locker room just got really angry when he scored his first goal because uh, apparently, according to Anelka's version, nobody celebrated that goal with him. That is what Vicente del Bosque says. Uh, but there are few things that Anelka did that were considered at least eccentric. Number one, he left the training ground once in his uh, car's booth and his brother was driving because he didn't want to meet press. And uh, then his style was uh, probably too, too much for a rather conservative society. I don't know. But he, he wasn't rolling up his... Uh, one of his trousers legs. Um, he was walking like that in Spain. And uh, I remember that that got a lot of fun from media too. So what? I think that what? it was what? just the wrong, the wrong moment for Anelka to be there. And I'm not blaming Anelka. I'm not blaming Real Madrid. I'm just right. saying that the moment was not quite right for, for Anelka to be there. Right. Turn-ups on the field, yes. Turn-ups off it, no. <laughs> 
So that was him, and he had got them through to the final. So let's then deal with the events of the 24th of May at the Stade de France. What happened when Real Madrid took on free-scoring Valencia? Wow, 3-0 to Real Madrid. Pick of the goals from Steve McManaman. The third goal, pretty special. Valencia, just one shot on target. And perhaps the most one-sided final that the Champions League has ever seen. Jules, you were there. I was, James. I was indeed in the stands. And Alvaro can, can talk about the final better than me. But from being there, the feeling very, very early on, literally the first five minutes, was that it was going to be men against kids and that that Valencia players who was was all this was f so new to them was going to, were going to be far too nervous compared to a, a Real Madrid team who most of that squad or some of that squad had just won the, the the competition two years before they were very much used to that kind of environment and the final and the tension and the pressure and everything and they just walked they walked over them it was not even it was enjoyable it was a nice final because Real Madrid played really well and McManaman scored a lovely goal but it, there was no contest so it would be like we were there and it was a lovely day and it was just a bit like mm, okay. Did the occasion get to them, Alvaro? I think that uh, probably yes. I believe that it helps a lot if uh, you score uh, the, the first goal first and I think Real Madrid did more to deserve that. Uh, it also helps the fact that the manager was confident that he was going to stay next season because Vicente del Bosque was uh, given a contract extension the day before the final. So all those things obviously help. There was a player who wanted to vindicate himself, Raul. Uh, he played the 1998 um, Champions League final. He didn't score that time and uh, it was basically a crusade for him. He wanted to score that day and he managed to score the third goal of Real Madrid. And uh, I believe that uh, probably that season uh, it became clear that uh, Casillas and Raúl were going to be two of the stars of Real Madrid in the seasons ahead. Casillas that season had played his first game in 1999 and he became Real Madrid goalkeeper and he won the Champions League being 19 years old. That third goal is hilarious though. It's bizarre because, all right, Valencia trying to get back in the game, but there's still 15 minutes to go, and Raul gets it from a Valencia corner, cleared up field. He runs from his own half, and every Valencia player, other than the Canizares, is behind him. And he has loads of time to, and to be fair, a lovely round the keeper and then finish with his wrong foot behind the onrushing defender, which is just very, very good. But even so, I mean, yeah. there's desperation and there's like, you know, well, mega Basically, the entire Valencia team are in the Real Madrid box. Meanwhile, what about... <laughs> Macca's goal. A red five says, in conversations about Real Madrid greats, Steve McManaman's name never gets much coverage. Is he regarded as a true Galactico in Madrid? How was he seen in Spain, Alvaro? The answer to the Galactico thing is no, but he will be remembered as a very good Real Madrid player. And uh, in Spain, he managed to adapt his game a little bit. Uh, when he signed uh, from Liverpool, he was a really fast winger. And in Spain, he switched a little bit to the centre and he became uh, more of a passing midfielder and uh, he got really good campaigns uh, in Spanish football that bicycle kick goal or I don't know how you bicycle volley Scissor I don't know kick. how would you call yeah. it um, that he scored in the Champions League final well he scored another goal like that also in La Liga so he became a little bit of a specialist uh, doing that as well and uh, he was a player with uh, plenty of charisma as well uh, unlike Anelka he, he got a really good integration in the locker room and uh, 
unfortunately for him, there was a time when Real Madrid decided that it was you know time to depart, uh, to part ways and sign different players. But McManaman had, uh, I would say, that uh, really complete time in Spain and definitely he helped Real Madrid midfield a lot. And he remains one of only six English players to ever score in a Champions League final and the only one to do it for a non-English club as well. The other thing for me for the final being there at the stadium was, and we talked about Redondo before and that game in, in Old Trafford, but seeing him play, again, this was easy for, it was an easy game for him, for all Real Madrid players. So he was, but he was so elegant. One of the most elegant players I've ever seen live. And that's the only time I've seen him. I've never seen him in another game live. Just the charisma that he had, the, the, the elegance, it was, just, it was just beautiful to see. And again, it was an easy game for him. There was no... There was nothing special in his performance. He was he was he was in control from first minute to the last minute, like the whole the rest of the team. But he was just so elegant, and that left foot was so beautiful. And and for Anelka to that's the last game he played for Real Madrid, and he was back in Paris, where you know obviously he was born. So it was a special moment as well. And I think he was a, a two finger sign to to everybody in Madrid and the fans and everybody saying like, you see, I got you here with my goal in the semi final. We've won this together. Now I can go and he will win the Euros with France and. And, and when, we, when we looked into the 1997 uh, season and, and Real Madrid winning that and we said Christian Carambo won the Champions League and then we'll win the, the World Cup with France and not many players have done that in the career. Then Carambo won this one, although he didn't play in the final and then goes and, and, and win the, um, the Euros with France as well the, a few weeks later. Nice. Of course, uh, Anelka famous for another two-finger gesture later on in his career. Obviously, this was this final was in two thousand, the start of a new decade, start of a new century, and you know people look what's going to happen, you know, for the future, glorious future. One thing I noticed about the Real Madrid team for this final is that four of the players ended up in that decade getting signed by Sam Allardyce, um, which was possibly not what they envisaged <laughs> on that warm evening in Paris. So you had Campo, uh, Anelka, and Fernando Hierro all at, at Bolton, and uh, Michel Salgado at Blackburn. So, just shows you can never predict the future. And one, one, one more thing, uh, this is on a more serious note. I mean, uh, the country dominance became a thing in Champions League. Uh, the minute more teams uh, were invited to, mm. to the competition. And since that uh, maiden final between Real Madrid and Valencia, there have been seven European Cup finals featuring teams from the same country. Uh, yeah, seven. And uh, from 1980 to 2000, uh, there were teams from nine different countries winning the European Cup. But from 2000 until now, only teams from five countries have won the Champions League. This is a little bit unexpected, maybe, because when the Iron Curtain fell, it looked like uh, those countries from the East were going to be able to reach our financial levels on the West of Europe. But it has become very obvious that uh, it's been West Europe who has been dominating football after the Iron Curtain fell. And Real Madrid in particular, Avro. This was number eight. They're now up to 13. Of course, Valencia would be back to try their luck in the final the following season again with Hector Couper in charge. And guess how that went. We'll be talking about that season next time around. Any final thoughts, though, on 99-2000? Jules, Alvaro, Duncan? Yeah, only one more in, uh, about Real Madrid, if I can. Uh, Real Madrid president at the time, Lorenzo Sanz, thought it was a good time after winning the Champions League to call elections because he thought he was going to win. But somebody called Florentino Perez appeared there saying that he had signed Figo and the rest is history. Florentino won the elections in summer 2000 and the Real Madrid Galactico time officially started in summer 2000. Well, we'll hear more about that, Alvaro, next week when we touch on the 2000-2001 campaign. Right now, though, it's time to conclude today's Totally Football Show with round two of the Inter Totally. 
All right, welcome back, Carl Anker. Hello, everyone. And welcome back, Michael Cox. Hi, James. Hi to you, Michael. Michael, of course, with a two-point lead from the specialist subject round, and now it's all about the general knowledge. Carl, you need an absolutely huge performance here. Yeah, a bit nervous. Okay. Here we go. Let's crack on then with your questions. Question one, Carl. At which club did Ronaldo, Ronaldo the Phenomenal, the Brazilian one, end his career? Oh. Uh, the last club I remember him playing for was uh, AC Milan. No, it was Corinthians. No. Okay, it's fine. Question two. Who said, when questioned about why he had taken a colleague's plate during a pre-match meal, when you're the king, you can do what you want? That would be Alan Pardew. That's correct. Question three. Which manager's first job was at Bournemouth and his most recent at Middlesbrough? Uh, Tony Pulis? Is correct. You're level now with Michael Cox. <sighs> this to take the lead, Carl. Who were the first team to not Real Madrid out of the European Cup? Ever? Uh, in the history of the competition, yes. Ooh, blimey. <laughs> I have no idea. Um... History of European Cup, uh, have to be champions at the time. Uh, Hamburg? Why not Hamburg? No, no, it was Barcelona. <laughs> Tried to be cute, ended up being ugly. <laughs> so, question five then, Carl. Which Qatar-based team is Xavi currently the manager of? I would not want to disgrace myself by trying to pronounce it, because it'd, be it'd just be a guess, so I will politely pass, unfortunately. <laughs> It's Al Sad, Carl, which you must be, because you only got two out of five, which means that you are level with Coxie. If Coxie fails to answer any of his general knowledge questions, we're heading for a tiebreaker, but just one correct answer will take him through to the semi-finals. Michael, are you ready then for general knowledge? Yep, hoping to not do a Pat Nevin. But if you could just get them all wrong to the last one, that will at least preserve a bit of tension. Let's see how you do anyway. Question one. At which club did Ronaldo, or Phenomenal, the Brazilian one, start his career? Uh, I think it was Cruzeiro. It was. And you're through to the semi-finals <laughs> where you'll be taking on Damn. Jack Lang. I know you'll want to do the other general knowledge questions. Of you know, course. For a, yeah. a good. Uh, question two. Who said, it was a freakish incident. If I tried it a hundred or a million times, it couldn't happen again. If I could, I would have carried on playing. Uh, freakish incident. Um, if I tried it a hundred or a million times, it couldn't happen again. If I could, I would have carried on playing. Oof, I can't think of an answer to that one. Let me hang on. Uh, Can I get one? <laughs> yeah, go on, Carl. Uh, might this be Roberto Carlos? No, <laughs> although it would have been appropriate uh, without the if. In that sentence. No, no, no idea on that one, James. It was Sir Alex Ferguson on accidentally kicking that boot that cut David Beckham's ball. Uh... Question three. Which manager's first club job was Blackburn and his most recent Southampton? Blackburn and Southampton. Uh... Mm. <sighs> Don't know. Pass. I know this one, I think. Go on then, Carl. It's Mark Hughes. It is. Question oh, four. Who was the last team to beat Real Madrid in a Champions League or European Cup final? Uh, Champions League or European Cup final? Um, mm. 
struggling to remember Real Madrid losing one. Uh, was it? Wasn't? It? No. Um, sorry, I have to pass that one as well. It was Liverpool in 1981. Really? Okay. Wow. No. <laughs> Question five. Which Japanese team is Andres Iniesta currently playing for? Oh, is it the same one as Podolski? But I can't remember which one it is. I will guess at S-Pulse. Incorrect, Michael. It's Vissel Kobe. Uh... So, you've scored one point out of five on the general knowledge, but that is enough to take you through to a semi-final with Jack Lang. One point, though, out of five. Yeah, disappointing general knowledge round. I'm, I'm relieved I got the, the first of those five questions right. Otherwise, I really would have been panicking. Yeah, absolutely. Carl, I'm afraid you leave the Intertotally for this season at least. <sighs> Anton Griezmann, we hardly knew you. Uh, great effort, Michael. Uh, yeah, that was a good, a, good, <laughs> a good battle. And now Jack Lang in the next round, which I'm looking forward to. I mean, you have to defeat Jack Lang. I, I do hope so. I know I've got Emma Saunders' many considerable uh, supporters on my side for that one. Well, there you go. Michael Cox is through to the semi-final where he'll be taking on Jack Lang, the other semi-final featuring Daniel Story against a certain Alvaro Romeo. Alvaro. Yeah, I've been preparing already. Uh, you know, uh, fittingly, we, I will be answering about uh, Real Madrid Galactico time. Mm. So I managed to put together uh, the research of this podcast into yes. the quiz. I thought Excellent. that was a clever way of doing it. <laughs> if, if you need any Jonathan Woodgate information, give me a shout. Of course, man. I will. Onky status. Real Madrid and the Galactico era won't be the only thing you're answering on, Alvaro, because, of course, with the semi-finals, we've introduced some UEFA-style changes of our own. With home and away ties, you'll each be answering questions on each other's specialist subjects. Boom. Boom. What? Away Was answers count double. Announced in the, in the regulations pre-season. I think you have to put it in the yeah, in regulations the before the season starts. I think the comics voted for it, so it's fine. Yep. I'm going to challenge good. this to, to Cass. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the first semi is Alvaro against Daniel, and that will be coming up in this weekend show, available Sunday night or Monday morning, depending on your time zone. Listener, that wraps it up for today, though. Julian, any other nuggets before we depart? I don't think so. I mean, I I thought it was a very good uh, recollection of this quite wonderful uh, Champions League season. Oh, that's lovely. How nice. Alvaro, Duncan, many thanks to you for your participation and you, Jules. Look forward to speaking to you all again soon. And listener, thanks for being with us. We're back this weekend with Matt, James Horncastle and Daniel Storey. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.